The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, if not my favorite book altogether. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. Is we're going to I want to preach all the way through the entire book of Ephesians, and um, and hope that. Uh, God speaks to you and blesses you with that. So I want to begin with a few select readings from the book of Ephesians that I think are going to be very key and very helpful to us as we study. So I'm going to begin in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And if you can turn pages quickly and keep up with me, that'll be fine. Uh, if you need to look at the screen, you can do that as well. So beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, here's God's word to us. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making him known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is a magnificent passage. And if you didn't know, in the original Greek, it is one very long run-on sentence with no punctuation. And it's fascinating to study all the intricacies of that passage. I want to bounce down now to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You may be familiar um, with this chunk of scripture if you follow Jesus for uh, any short period of time. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, it's the biggest but in all the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. That is a chorus of children. That's my grandson. Where was I? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, you, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you would, turn to chapter 4 with me, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now for our last passage, if you would turn to chapter 6 with me, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have, having done all to stand firm. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Uh, join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you so much for the, the blessing and the gift, specifically of the book of Ephesians. I pray, God, that you would center our hearts and focus our minds and help us to wrestle with the main message of the book of Ephesians. Help us to gain a deeper understanding of who we are because we belong to you. Help us to gain a deeper understanding and confidence in what it means to walk in obedience to you. And give us strength and courage as we study to stand firm against the evil in this world that we live amidst. God, help us to put you on and to wrestle with the fact that you have truly redeemed us through the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus. Trust that you'll do this and then some in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So as I said earlier, the book of Ephesians is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite book in the entire Bible. I would say right next to the book of Romans and then especially Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is definitely my favorite spot in all the Bible for sure, but Ephesians is probably my favorite book. 
Seems appropriate to me that Ephesians and Romans for me would be favorites. Um, Some people believe that uh, the book of Romans is most likely uh, an extended commentary on the same themes that Paul begins to explain here in Ephesians. I think that's probably true. Uh, As you start to think about this letter that Paul writes, it's important to remember that the Apostle Paul actually planted the church in Ephesus, where the letter to the Ephesians is going. And uh, he, he, he planted that church in Ephesus many years before he wrote this letter. And when he planted that church in Ephesus, that church absolutely rocked the community of Ephesus. You can see this in Acts chapters 19 and 20. Uh, if you were to read the story, what you'll find out is Paul starts off in Ephesus with a core team of about 12 dudes, okay? These are 12 guys who received the Holy Spirit, according to the story. And then he spends the next three months trying to convince the Jewish believers in that community, uh, in the local synagogue, of the power of the gospel. And they basically rejected the message of the gospel. And so what does Paul do? Well, he leaves town licking his wounds. No, he doesn't leave town licking his wounds. Okay. He, he, he actually winds up moving across the street on the next corner and sets up shop there and continues to preach the gospel and planting that church for the next two years. Fascinating if you ask me. As time went on, what happened is that many people, according to Acts 19 and 20, many people began to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, respond to the gospel, even to the extent that those who practiced witchcraft, uh, black magic, occultism, spiritism, these were the things that were among the top religious practices in Ephesus, according to most scholars and history books. Even those people that were being saved out of that religious background were beginning to burn their books of witchcraft in the streets. And they were getting rid of their their precious silver and gold and bronze idols. Now all of that resulted uh, not only in the word of God continuing to increase and continuing to prevail mightily, according to chapter 19 and verse 20 of Acts, But it also caused a riot in town. So can you imagine that? Like a church causes a riot. Not because we had to wear masks, but it actually caused a riot because people were getting saved out of some really dark backgrounds. How about that? It caused that riot because the silversmiths and the other precious metal workers in town, they're losing their profits because a ton of people are getting saved renouncing all of their previous involvement in witchcraft. And so these guys aren't making a profit anymore. So those guys cause a riot, drag Paul and others in front of the city council, and it just gets crazy. The gospel in Ephesus at this time where Paul planted was was literally causing what I would call a cultural earthquake, right? Because of the tenacity of 12 men, one apostle, who had the message of the gospel. That's that's the center of the book of Ephesians. That's where it all starts. Now, years later, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church. And there's uh, different views on what the actual aim of the book is, like what's Paul's purpose. Um, 
I think that Paul's aim all throughout the book um, is to help believers in Ephesus to do three things. Number one, rest or sit securely in their newfound identity in Christ. Um, Live or, or walk in ways that bring honor to Christ. As well as remain standing steadfast in their commitment to Jesus. So it's as though I think the Apostle Paul is trying to answer some basic questions for the Ephesians. You might ask these questions sometimes too. Who am I really? Right? Like really who am I? Once you, once you shed all of the roles, father, son, mother, wife, sister, daughter, friend. Once you shed all those roles deep down inside of you, who are you really? What does obedience to God look like? You ever ask that question? Like, how do I honor God in this specific situation? And how do I endure or stand firm in the midst of all the evil that surrounds me? The reality, I think, is that every day we are faced with believing what God says about us. We can either do that or we can listen to the lies of the enemy. It's either or. You're either going to believe what God says about you or you're going to listen to the lies of the enemy. Remember, the enemy is so deceptive. Every day we are challenged with numerous opportunities to either obey God, bring honor to his name, disobey God, bring dishonor to his name, right? Time and time and time again throughout the day, you and I are going to be faced with those opportunities. Every day we're going to face tremendous pressure to conform to the evil ways of the world around us. Satan, sin, and death. Constantly accusing, constantly tempting, constantly taunting. We face that kind of pressure, I think, every day, just like the Ephesian church. And Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to help us to believe who we are based upon who we belong to. If you belong to Jesus, this message is meant to establish you, to encourage you, to strengthen you. If you're listening to this message and you're not a believer, this this book is meant to invite you into a life that would far surpass your wildest dreams. I think he wrote this book of Ephesians to help us believe who we are based upon who we belong to. He wrote it to help us live in obedience to God. Wrote it to help us resist the evils of the world around us. Some scholars um, take a slightly different approach and I think it's worth noting um, and I think it's a great approach, too. So if you're a note taker, um, take some notes on this one, because I think this is a fascinating way to study the book of Ephesians. It's a little bit different than the way we're going to study it this morning, but I just want to give you another tool or another way to study. Um, there are some scholars who would summarize Paul's aim um, in, as he writes, and they would say that what Paul is doing is he is calling the Ephesians to remember their new identity in Christ. That would be chapters 1 through 3. And then he's also um, calling the Ephesians to embrace what they call a new morality. So they they would say, Paul wants the Ephesian church to understand their identity according to chapters 1 through 3, and then embrace and exhibit a new morality which is set by the example of Christ, chapters 4 through 6. Now, what the Apostle Paul does throughout the book, if you take those two thoughts in mind, you have a new identity, therefore live in a new way, Um, what Paul does is he kind of underscores that vision. He kind of undergirds it with some foundation. And some of the foundation that he gives there for those two things is building metaphors. 
Meaning we're going to build something. We're going to build something underneath this new identity and this new morality you're going to live in. And in chapter 2 and chapter 4, he talks about building things. If you were to look at uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, what Paul does there is he basically expands on the ending of verse 10, where he says that the Ephesian believers are God's workmanship, right? God's, God is building something. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, in Ephesus, there were both Gentile and Jewish believers. And so Paul addresses the fact that even though the Gentile and Jewish believers were once separated... They are now being built into one new man in place of the two through Christ's work at the cross. That's verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2. So that's one of the building metaphors. Okay? He presses it even further, and he says, hey, you Gentiles, you're no longer outsiders. And you Jews, you're no longer the privileged insiders. Both of you are now held together by the work of Jesus at the cross, according to verses 16 and 19 of chapter 2. Both groups are now members of the household of God, according to verse 19. So can you see the building metaphor? This building of the household of God. It's been founded on the word of the apostles and the prophets, according to verse 20. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, or, or he's the glue of the entire structure. The whole thing is this holy temple unto the Lord. That's what we are. As a holy temple, uh, this one new man, between insiders and outsiders who are all now insiders and together, bought together by the blood of Jesus, this one new man is being built together into a dwelling place. This is key, dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You think about the fact that God would live inside of us. Once you submit and surrender to him and become saved, right? And it's not just that he would live inside you as an individual. He would live inside of you and you and you and you. And we would all make up these living stones that make up the body of Christ, that make up this spiritual house. In Paul's mind, when he lays this whole building thing out in chapter 2, he's basically agreeing with the apostle Peter who would say in 1 Peter 2 through 5, that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So Paul does use this building metaphor in chapter 2. But he also uses one in chapter 4, and I think it's worth looking at briefly. Um, He comes back to this building metaphor in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. He says that God has given leaders to the church, right? Probably somewhat familiar with that passage. Given them to the church. Why? Uh, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, according to verse 12 of chapter 4. So that the body of Christ, he says, joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, does what? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. i, I got to say, like that whole section of scripture in chapter 4 regarding church leaders and church members, it totally blows the doors off our westernized idea of what church should be. Right? Like it's not the paid vocational pastor's job to do all the work of ministry. It's our job (coughs) as members in the church to build one another up in love. If a church fails, it's not necessarily the failure of the pastor, although it can be, and the pastor must be held accountable as well, but it's just as much on the shoulders of members of a church. 
If a church becomes a social club, whose fault is that? That would be the pastor and the members. If a church falls apart and gets divided, whose fault is that? Pastor and members. You following me? Together in that. Paul does a great job of building this building metaphor based upon here's what the church should look like. Now I think <clears throat> when you look at those two building metaphors, the greatest connecting key that kind of binds both those metaphors together, both the household of God and the church of God, the body of Christ, the thing that ties those together, it's the work of Christ at the cross, right? He is the church's head. He is the church's foundation. He is the unifying glue that holds us all together as he begins by reconciling you and I to our Father first and then reconciling us to one another secondly. It goes vertical first and horizontal second. So Paul's aim, all throughout, I think, is to help us understand that we are God's workmanship, right? He is building us, both insider and proverbial outsider, into a visible household here on earth where the Spirit of God lives and breathes and literally does what? Turns the stinking world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. That's what happened in Ephesus, right? But I also think Paul wants to underscore at the same time the truths that to become that spiritual house, listen, to be that spiritual house or to become that kind of spiritual household where the Spirit of God lives and breathes and turns the world upside down, if we're going to become that, then the members that live inside that house have to know who they are because of whose they are. They have to know how to walk in obedience in accordance with who and whose they are. They have to know how to stand firm against the forces of evil, this present darkness that we live in. And I think I have found over the years that the easiest way to remember Paul's aim in that is to remember the words sit, walk, stand. You might say it with me. Sit, walk, stand. We'll try it again. We'll see if we can get it. Sit, walk, stand. Very good. We can get that in our minds. We're going to walk through that briefly. First of all, when it comes to sitting, we must sit in our Christ-like identity. And you think about identity, right? It's that question, who are you? Who am I deep down inside when everything is stripped away? <clears throat> when I'm alone in the dark with just my thoughts and the murmurings of my soul, who am I really? And I think identity really is the core of the Christian life when you think about it. It really is. It's probably one of the most often overlooked aspects of being a child of God. Our hearts and our minds, I think, um, I just know my rhythms, oftentimes scream really unholy thoughts or really unholy desires, don't they? Your heart and your mind inside of you screaming unholy thoughts, unholy desires, 24-7, right? Some of the things that we might say, like, I'm worthless because I failed, or I, I feel more worthy because I succeeded. Maybe, maybe I'm, I think I'm unlovable because I sinned, or, or I'm more lovable because I didn't sin. To so the negative self-talk within us when you think about this. The negative self-talk, the way that our mind talks to us all the time is like a preacher. It preaches. And there's a pulpit inside of us that never stops. Our hearts and our minds have like a bullhorn 
at that pulpit inside of us within the recesses of our souls. And when we strip everything away and get down to the who am I really, the question is whose voice will you listen to the most? Paul I think gets this and he wants to combat that brokenness within us. He wants to hammer home the truth of who we actually are in Christ. And when you look at uh, this first section, it runs all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 21 of chapter 3. This whole massive section is centered around this idea of being seated in our new identity in Christ. And it really hinges on one verse. Verse 6 of chapter 2. And you'll see it on the screen. Paul says that God raised us up with him. That's Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I would encourage you, circle that word seated. Underline it. Draw arrows to it. So that every time you read the book of Ephesians, when you get to that seated part, you would remember. And I need to sit in my new identity in Christ now, I think there are a few keys to this. There's a few keys to, to being seated with Christ. And one of the keys is this phrase, in Christ or in Him. The, the phrase, in Christ, or the phrase, in Him, is this image and this picture of, of the moment that we begin to follow Jesus, He comes to live by the power of His Spirit within us. But then at the same time, he takes us and he places us inside the hand of his father and we are encaptured by our father. So it's Christ in us, us in him, us in the father. That phrase, in Christ or in him, it's actually used a little over 25 times throughout the book to drive home this truth that our identity, listen, our identity is not rooted in our performance. Fail or succeed, you are not who you are because of your performance. You are who you are because of Christ's perfect performance. We are who God says we are because he redeemed us. A very, very important word for us to hang on to. I was so encouraged that we sang that a couple of songs that talked about us being redeemed this morning. Every time I came across that word, I'm like, yo, God, you're, I didn't choose those songs. Those songs I think Patrick chose months ago, and I could have never known. I love seeing with the Holy Spirit, because that word redeemed is going to be so important for us later. It is a key. And here's just a brief analogy real fast. When it comes to this word redeemed, it means that we are twice owned by the God who created us, and had paid the price to purchase us back from the clutches of Satan, sin, and death. And it's more powerful than you may initially think right now. But we'll come back to it in the end. For now, for now, I think that you and I have to constantly learn what it means to sit in our identity in Christ. But one thing you could do is do a study through the book of Ephesians on your own and circle all 25 or more times that you find that phrase, in him or in Christ. And then look at what's attached to the phrase. Why is the in him or in Christ there and what does it mean? What's it attached to? Does it have to do with righteousness? Have to do with salvation? Have to do with purity? What does it have to do with? 
It had to do with maybe having God's love lavished upon you. The idea of having God lavish his love on you, though you don't deserve it, is so powerful. I would challenge you to do that. Another thing that I've found helpful over the years in preaching this identity thing to myself to combat the negative self-talk is to make a list of all the descriptions of who I was before Christ on the one hand and who I am in Christ now that he's found me, right? Uh, The way that I do it is I I draw a cross on a piece of paper and, and under your, or right above your left beam, you would write that first phrase, uh, before Christ I was, and then over here, over the right beam, would be the in Christ I am, and then underneath both those phrases, I will do a complete study through the book and say, I will finish that phrase, before Christ I was, whatever the book says, right? If you start off, and if you even just go to chapter 2, before Christ, I was what? Dead in trespasses and sins. Before Christ, I was following the course of this world. Before Christ, I was following the prince of the power of the air. See what I'm doing? You finish those phrases. You finish those lists. And I'll tell you, what you will find from a visual standpoint is absolutely stunning. If you do the study well, you keep after it. And I would say you have to keep the list going. Like you have to keep reading through the book and completing because you'll find more words and more phrases that will fit as you go. What you'll find is visually stunning. You'll find that your list of underneath that beam of the cross of who I was before Christ is about yay long. Grasp that, about yay. Okay, I don't know why people say yay, but it's about yay long. And the list that you'll find of the in Christ I am is about this long. Now, what does that tell you about how important God thinks we need to study who he says we are? His point is, yeah, this list of who you used to be is yay long, and this list of who you are now is this long, and yet what you wind up doing is you spend all this time because of that stupid little voice inside your head focusing on these little things. And I think if we spend more time looking at this list over here, based upon the cross of Jesus, it's at the center, right? I think it would do wonders, wonders for the condition of our soul and our communion with God. So I would challenge you to do that. Can't just sit, though, right? Can't just sit around. You also have to get up, and you have to start walking, okay? So that's the second thing I want us to look at. Um, The second thing. Uh, it's not only that we want to sit in our identity, our newfound identity in Christ, but we also need to walk in humble obedience to God. Now, obedience is no easy thing to do. Does anybody understand that? Children, is it hard to obey? Do you like to obey? You should like to obey because it goes better for you when you do obey, right? You don't get in trouble. Okay, so I do like to obey. Good, we're on the same page. <laughs> it is absolutely impossible, though, to obey God you ever figured that out? Like, I can obey in some things for a little while, and while failing in other things. And then a little while later, I can obey in some of the things I was failing in earlier, but then start disobeying in the things I was obeying earlier. It's just, it's absolutely whack. I don't know if you found that out in your life, but when I read Romans chapter 7, right before Romans 8, Paul talks about how tough this is. I go, you know what? I think the human experience is true. It is hard to obey. 
And it's impossible to obey God without the help of his spirit. Now, check this out, okay? When you think of the message of Ephesians, you think of the message of Romans, you, you tie them together, here's what you find. You find this, the very God who demands our obedience gives his one and only son to pay the price for our disobedience of warfare against him. And then on top of that, he also gives us his spirit to enable our obedience. You just let that sink in for a minute. Just think about that. It's, it's whack. Like the very message that the God who demands our obedience pays for our disobedience and enables our obedience based upon our faith. That is the essence of the message of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that good news? Like bad news is like, yo, you got to do 50,000 things to get anywhere close to this God. But the good news is this guy goes, hey, man, I demand your obedience. And guess what? You can't do it. I'm not against you. I'm for you. And so I'm going to offer you a way that you can come close to me through me giving my son on your behalf. And then as you draw close to me, I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can now obey. That's really good news. <laughs> That's really good news. That's not a pull up your bootstraps kind of a message. That's a message of grace. Pure, undulterated grace all the way through. It's really good news. Good news to know that we're not left to our own devices to draw close to God. And listen, that's the message that turned Ephesus upside down. Right? Question still remains, what does it look like to walk in obedience to God, right? How do we walk in obedience to God amidst a broken and perverse culture? What does it look like? And Paul addresses this in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. There's a lot there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for us verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, just so you can kind of see how Paul begins this massive section. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, the calling to which you have been called is an important phrase. The calling to which you've been called. Primarily, we've been called first to follow Jesus for salvation. And then secondly, we are to follow Jesus in our calling to minister. Okay? You were never called to get saved and sit in a seat. You were called to get saved and then go be a blessing. Period. So, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This stinking passage wrecked me this week. Wrecked me. Like left me incapable of doing anything more that day for the most part. There were some things I needed to deal with. The calling we've been called to is the calling to belong to God based upon the work of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. And the way we are to walk out that calling in obedience is in humility. Why? So that we maintain peace-filled, spirit-led unity. That key thing in unity it's very interesting because when you think about the concept of unity and then you think of all of what paul talks about in chapters 4 verse 1 all the way through 6 9 everything paul talks about is relationally driven from this point forward it's all relationships and paul hones in at the front edge and goes hey unity in relationships is really important yo right we know this don't we look around the broken world that we live in Think about your own marriage and your friendships and so on and so forth. Disunity and division marks the world we live in, doesn't it? If you're a Democrat, I hate you. 
if you're a Republican, I hate you. Right? It just goes on and on and on. Our world that we live in. Question is, what does this look like? If Paul's line of thought is driven by relationships in this whole section, you think about it, he begins with relationships in the church, as well as our individual responsibilities to one another. That's verse 4 of chapter 4 through verse 21 of chapter 5. All about how the church ought to relate to one another, leaders and members. And then he moves outward to the family. And he speaks about roles of husbands and wives and children, right? And then after that, he lands on how to be obedient in a vocational role of employer and employee. Now, the bottom line here is if you want to know how to walk in obedience as a church leader or an individual church member or a husband or a wife or a child or an employer or an employee, God is very clear in this entire section of scripture about what obedience looks like. And the key in all of this is that you and I would walk as the blood-bought children that we really are. You say, hey, this is your identity, now walk like it. This is who you belong to, now walk like you belong to him, right? Leaders, <laughs> if I were to summarize each group, right? Got leaders, got members, husbands, wives, so on and so forth. If I were to summarize each one, leaders are called to serve by making fully mature believers in the church. Church members are called to serve one another by building each other up in the love of Jesus. Husbands, called to serve their wives by loving them just like Jesus loved the church. Wives, called to submit to their husbands and respect them just as they submit to and respect Jesus who serves and loves them sacrificially. There's keys in all of this. Children, children called to obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, that it may go well with you because if you disobey, it doesn't go so well. Agreed? We agree? Capiche? Good. Employees, if you're an employee, you're called to serve your boss from a pure heart as you understand that you're not actually serving your boss, you're actually serving Jesus in your job. It's not just a paycheck. You're serving Jesus there. Employers, also, they're called to resist this urge to be heavy-handed, abusive, you could say, controlling, manipulative, whatever it may be, coercive, with their employees. Oftentimes this happens with employers uh, because they're concerned about the bottom line or their own personal gain. The reality is Jesus never uses or abuses those who are under his care. Never uses them for his own personal gain. It was all sacrificial. So God has a word for all of us in all those different roles and what it looks like to walk out in obedience our identity. Now, I want to say a few final things on this section that I think are important, um, especially since Paul's entire range of thought is relationally driven. There are occasions, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, you've probably experienced them too. There are occasions when church leaders abuse their power. There's occasions where church members manipulate with their influence. There's occasions where husbands begin to use and abuse their wives. There are occasions where wives become deceitful, dishonest, domineering. There are uh, occasions where children become disobedient and obnoxious. <laughs> there are times, too, when parents become neglectful, right? There are times when employees become lazy or employers become heavy-handed. And in those occasions we have to know that it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of, of wisdom from the community around us, namely the, the family of God, to chart 
a faithful pathway forward. I do believe that in relationships, there are points of no return, if you understand what I mean. There are boundaries and barriers that get crossed that means we cannot be reconciled again this side of heaven because you did X, Y, Z. So I'm going to use an extreme example. If somebody sexually abuses somebody, we're not going to put them back in the same room together again. Abuser and victim, right? Victim needs to be cared for. Abuser needs to be accountable. Can be saved. Yes. But that full reconciliation, not going to happen until heaven. Make sense? My point in using that illustration is there are times in relationships where we have crossed a boundary too far. Uh, there still needs to be work done in forgiveness and be able to walk in love and be able to heal and hold people accountable and so on and so forth. It takes an awful lot of wisdom and prayer. If you were to ask me what do you think the core principle is and how you handle that, Many of you have heard me say this, and I just want to throw it out there in case you haven't heard me say it. I think the core principle comes back to Paul's instructions to wives. And the wives are like, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to talk about submitting. Well, if you were to look at verse 21, prior to where Paul says, hey, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If you look at verse 21, what does he say? Does anybody know? Somebody look it up. I'm going to wait. Let's go. Verse 21 of chapter 5. Better be verse 21. <laughs> I might be wrong because this is not my notes. This is totally off the cuff. Sorry, y'all. Yes. Yes. Submit to one another, right, as you submit to God. Is that right? Do I get close? Yep. Submit to one another as you submit. So based on that, submission to one another as we submit to God then Paul says, hey, submit to your own husband's wives. But there's a key phrase. And the key phrase I always land on is the phrase that says, as to the Lord. That's the key phrase. And I think that's the key phrase that establishes a, a boundary for all of the relationships in this section. Wives are called to submit to a sacrificial savior. Agreed? If you're going to submit to God, you're submitting to a sacrificial savior. You're not submitting to an egotistical, abusive, neglectful little boy with a mustache who likes to pretend that he's a man. That's not who you're called to submit to. And I say this in every wedding message I do now. Because I've found that we are broken. And we need to be reminded, don't we guys? Don't we gentlemen? <laughs> My point here is that God loves and protects the downtrodden. He loves the abused. He stands against oppressors. He stands against manipulators. And he stands against abusers. That's what he does. Time and time and time again. You do not leave abused people with their abuser. We rescue the abused. We shelter them from the abuser. We confront the abuser until there's a long pattern of repentance. I think that's the pattern that's appropriate. So... That little caveat said, identity is the key to obedience because who we are, listen, who we are is dictated by whose we are, okay? Who you are is dictated by whose you are. And if you know who and whose you are, then walking in obedience is the necessary outcome. Here, here's why I say that. We do what we say we're going to do because we are who we say we are. And we are who we say we are because God is the one who says who we are. Go find that sentence somewhere and you can wrestle it down, okay? 
All of this identity, all this obedience talk, it naturally leads to Paul's final thought. Final thought about standing firm in the midst of an evil and perverse generation, right? It's a third piece. We've got to stand firm. Got to stand firm in the person and work of Jesus. Now, it's no easy task to stand firm against the waves of this present cultural darkness that we live in. I also don't think it's a secret that the culture we live in is hell-bent, right? Completely hell-bent on normalizing anything and everything that is absolutely abhorrent to God. The mass murder of innocent babies, to start with. The sexualization of anything and everything, from perfume to toilet paper. Okay? Um, greed around every corner, uh, especially in the entertainment industry. A self-indulgence of every kind, whatever trips your trigger, go get it. You think about demonic, oh, you poor baby. Come on, Milo. Would you chill out, bro? I see you too. I know. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Seriously, I'm getting there. <sighs> Be patient, little boy. You got demonic idol worship, right? You think of the movies and the music we listen to, how much demonic idol worship is in there. It's crazy. The list goes on and on, okay? None of these things are new or unique to our current culture. We oftentimes think they are, but they're not. You have to remember that many of the people who were saved and made up the church in Ephesus, if you do a study of this, you'll find... Again, these people were one-time demon worshipers, right? They were, they were jacked up in the occult. And they honestly, in that culture, had no problems with piles of newborn babies being discarded in the streets in a barbaric early form of, of abortion. It's horrible, horrifying if you think about it. All we've done is made it look a little cleaner in our culture. And there are accounts even of, of pornographic brothels on street corners all throughout the city of Ephesus. So if you think today is bad, it was just as bad then. The Ephesian culture, much like ours, was catapulting towards destruction in the grips of what I think Paul calls in verse 12, this present darkness. This present darkness. Now there's a book by that name um, that I highly recommend you read. Um, very, very good. One of my favorite books. This present darkness. Also piercing the darkness. Read those two books. I think it's fascinating. I think you'd love them. Paul says the culture is wrapped up in this present darkness. And that is where Paul calls the Ephesians to stand against it. The question is how? How do you stand against it and in it? And Paul's answer, I think, simply, if I were to summarize, Paul's answer is simply this. You stand firm by putting Jesus on like a solid set of armor. Put Jesus on like a solid set of armor. The thing that, that bugs me is, like, in kids' ministry, we give kids these little... Um, you know, cardboard swords and, you know, cardboard shoes and, you know, paper hats and, you know, I, we have to because we don't want kids to kill each other, but I just think we should probably give them some real armor. As I, there's something in the psyche that says, oh, this armor we're talking about and learning about really isn't as powerful as it seems. It's just a piece of paper. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you should walk in there next week in the kids' ministry with a double-edged sword or anything. I have one, but... I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you get me my point, right? Don't we then, from that point forward, start thinking that our armor is not as effective as it, as it really is? And I think the reason that we don't effectually put on that armor daily has to do with our view of Jesus, right? But we don't think he's as powerful as he really is. What Paul does in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 6 is he goes to great lengths 
And he describes the spiritual armor. He, he binds it up in the person and work of Jesus. He describes the belt of truth, right? Breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. And all of that is actually put on, on the daily, through the regular discipline of prayer. Now, ultimately, as I said earlier, I think that we stand firm with Jesus on us like a solid set of armor. And the way that we do that is we recognize that Jesus actually embodies every piece of that armor we put on, right? Think about this. The belt of truth. Jesus is the way, the what? The truth and the life, right? Uh, Jesus is our righteousness, correct? He takes our filth away, gives us his perfection. That's a breastplate that goes over our heart to protect our heart from the onslaught of Satan. Jesus is our prince of peace. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who, or faith, right? He's the one who won our salvation at the cross and the empty tomb. He's the sword of the spirit. Why? Because he's the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. So when we commune with Jesus through regular prayer on a daily basis, what we're doing is we're effectually putting Jesus on as our armor so that we can stand firm amidst this present darkness. One friend of mine, I think coming from another author, um, encouraged me once that when I pray in the morning to pray through each of the pieces of armor. As I got out of bed, put your feet on the floor, the shoes of peace. Think about Jesus as my Prince of Peace and just begin working through each piece of that so that when you walk out of your house, you're fully clothed. You might do that throughout the day. So that's maybe a helpful way that you can stand firm in this present darkness we live in. I want to conclude um, in a little bit of a different way, too. Um, as I studied and, and thought about those general themes, the instructions of this book, um, over the years, and I, some of you may know this, I've preached through the entire book of Ephesians. I think it took me a year to get through it a couple years ago. And so the hard part in preparing a sermon like this is I've got like a whole, there's seminary studies, and then there's also just an entire series. So all that content is up here still, and it all wants to come out. Um, I start, I've thought about the book of Ephesians for years, and when I was um, preaching through the book of Ephesians um, here in the church, and I had often wondered, um, like, how do I sit in that identity? How do I walk in obedience, and, and how do I stand firm with that armor on? Like, how do I often do that? How do I, how do I sit, walk, stand, right? Um, and so when I was preaching through the book of Ephesians, I think the Lord gave me a key to it. It was really impactful for me, and I know it's been impactful for others. Um, and I, I, think that it's, I think it's wrapped up in the concept of redemption. I told you guys earlier we were going to come back to it. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it's part of the first section of the scriptures we read the, the beginning of this message. And Paul says this, he says, in him, there's that phrase, in him, right, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And the question is, what is this redemption that has been lavished upon us? That's the question. <laughs> Again, I think this is the key to sit, walk, stand. What is that redemption? And there's a story that I landed on as I was preaching through those verses. I want to share it with you again or share it with you for the first time if you never heard it. <clears throat> there's a story. And this little boy. Shoot, it wrecks me. <laughs> well, the story of this little boy. He created a really beautiful little boat. 
with his mom and his dad. Uh, very similar to the triune Godhead when they created us. All of creation. Little boy enjoyed that creation, that little boat every day. And one day that boat went missing. What did little boy do? Build another one? No. Little boy went searching everywhere. Just like Jesus would search for us everywhere. Finally found it. Dark alley. Scuzzy little pun shop. Pawn shop. Little boy walks inside. He explains that this boat belongs to him because he created it. Well, there's a dirt ball of a pawn shop boss in there, and he's kind of echoing, I think, words from Satan, sin, and death throughout the, the ages. Tells this little boy, yeah, your, your creation belongs to me now. Your little creation is my slave. Your little creation is earning me tons of money. It's also earning me a lot of attention. So I think I'm just going to keep it. But if you really want it, the price to purchase it back is going to require your entire life savings. be similar to Jesus' life at that cross. And you'd think the little boy would walk out with his head down, but he didn't, right? Just like Jesus, that little boy gladly paid the price, of course, after conferring with his mom and dad before the foundations of the earth. And as he walked out of that pawn shop that day, got his beloved creation clutched in his arms, he uttered these words, I redeemed you. You're twice mine because I created you and I paid the price to purchase you back from your slave owner. That's the meaning of redemption. You and I are redeemed. God owns us twice if you trusted in him because he created you. And then he paid the price to purchase you back from the clutches of Satan, sin, and death. And he did that through the person and work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. And signifying that victory by leaving the tomb empty on a third day. We are redeemed if you trusted in Jesus. You're twice owned by the God who created you and the God who paid the price to purchase you back. You are literally, if you want the literal meaning of the word redeemed, the literal meaning is the word priceless. You are priceless. And if you'd like, you could go back to our series online. You can find that specific sermon. The title is called Priceless. And there's more to it. But when you and I, I think when we begin to get the sense that we are redeemed, we begin to get the sense that we are priceless, twice owned by the God who created and purchased us. I think what happens is as we wrestle that down, we're then enabled to sit in our Christ-like identity. We're enabled to walk in humble obedience to Jesus. We're enabled to stand firm in Christ as our spiritual armor. Because you're able to say, man, I'm priceless. That's what God says, but this is who I am. I can now walk like the priceless person God Redeem me to be, and I can stand in that way. I think that's the key to understanding. So get your mind wrapped around that. Be my encouragement. Get the mind, your mind wrapped around the fact that you are priceless, not worthless. You are priceless, not filthy. You're priceless, not alone. You're priceless, not rejected. Priceless, not hated. Priceless, not unlovable. Priceless, not forgotten. Priceless, not trash. Priceless because the God who created you also paid the price to buy you back from Satan, sin, and death. You're redeemed if you're a believer. Therefore, you can sit, 
walk and stand. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, God, as we close, Lord, that you would continue to do work inside of our hearts as we wrestle with what it means to be your priceless, redeemed children because of the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would lead us directly to the foot of that bloody cross. Remind us of the victory we have in the empty tomb and the hope that we have of eternity with you. God, we love you in Jesus' name.